We are towards the very end of the New Testament. We're looking at the letter of Jude. And I had the privilege of going through this in an almost haphazard way with the faith builders over the month of December, but that was really a joy. And so when Lance asked me to preach, I figured since I've done some of the work, let's go through the same book together here on Sunday night. And since you've sat down, I want to take that song to heart where it says, Church Arise, you have to stand back up now. <laughs> so we're going to read this together. We'll just read the first four verses of Jude. Letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for, uh, for today, for what we enjoyed this morning for our time of worship, for our time to gather and to see our friends, our, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, for, for what we heard from the pulpit, for the songs we sang, Lord, from what we had in the classes before, Lord, what a full good day, a day of celebrating our life in you. And so, Lord, as we come back together and uh, we open your word again, God, we pray that you would uh, awaken us after a full day and, Lord, give us hearts that are ready to hear and to receive your word, and that it would be that word which continues to transform us, to, re- to renew our minds, Lord, to, to the end that we would be um, just conformed to the image of your Son. Jesus, may you have your way in your church. So, Lord, we thank you for all this and pray for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this past year was a, a time of transition for the Brazil family. Uh, we watched our two young adults uh, leave the nest. And uh, one of the ongoing things, uh, gosh, leading up to it and during the months following that would get me up in the middle of the night was, had I done my job as dad? I was sending out two young adults, you know, to adult to adults in this world? Were they going to be contributors to society? Were they ready for the, the challenges ahead and, and for family life soon to follow? I mean, this is, it hit us all at once. And it was kind of unexpected because it was in the midst of Renee finding out about cancer, breast cancer. And that was something. And then all of a sudden, our kids are leaving. <laughs> like, wait, this is supposed to happen all at once. But uh, that, that did, did make me think through. But that, that is actually what's at the heart of this letter here. In Jude, we have that, that, that responsibility highlighted that every generation has the responsibility to pass the baton to that next generation. It means to, to proclaim the truth, to, to teach it, to instill it, to make it clear for the next generation, but it also means to protect it. And that's what's in this letter for us, this this call by Jude to protect the faith once for all delivered to the saints. 
And uh, I mean, part of my job as dad was to warn my children about you know, the dangers out there, the hazards to avoid, the people to avoid, whatever, just to help them be discerning and, and to you know, be aware of that. Well, that's what Jude is telling us that that's our responsibility as well. We've got, this is a warning letter. This is a strong letter. And in today's culture, it doesn't sit too well, hey, right? It's, we're called unloving. We're called severe. We're called harsh. It, it goes against the culture of tolerance, especially when it's just in the general world, that, that tolerance of accepting, you know, every religious claim to truth as valid. And we don't do that in the church of Jesus Christ, do we? There, he made a claim that was exclusive, and we have to stand by that. This claim of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the God in the flesh, the unique Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the great high priest who, who, whose offering of himself as the atoning sacrifice, our propitiation, was accepted by God the Father and there remains no further need for sacrifices. The salvation work is complete by him and in him and in him alone. There is no other name under heaven by which men will be saved. Well, today's thinking today's culture that's not acceptable and yet that's what we stand for in the church but indeed even in the church culture in america this is unpopular even this idea of what jude calls us indeed he gives the mandate to watch out for false teachers within the church and to name names oh man that is not acceptable in in large the larger christianity as a whole do you agree yeah. right that is the culture and again, we, we'd be called judgmental, harsh, unloving, mean-spirited. And yet, this letter is in our, in our scriptures, is it not? And it is dedicated to apostasy, to the false teachers that we are supposed to not just discern who they are, but to call them out and to kick them out. So this is a, this is a letter that's not popular. And uh, at the end of a great day of celebration, it may even feel like a jolt to the nerves as well. But this is God's word, and we need it. And uh, God didn't speak to me on hide. Hey, choose this book. It's just the one that we happen to go through in Faith Builders. And so let's go through it. It's God's word, right? So that's what we're going to do tonight. And, and as we go through this, if you're going to come on Sunday nights, I'd encourage you to read this letter. It's only 25 verses, but read it at least twice a week. But here's the deal. Look for repeated terms, look for contrasts, and then you will notice in this letter there's a lot of references to the Old Testament. In this letter, there's at least eight different references that should drive you backwards and to look at and ask, why is Jude using this as a reference? What is his point? Okay, so this is your little, a little Bible study uh, for you during the week. Get into the Word and let it speak to you. Don't just listen to me teach it. But get into it, then look at these references and, and, and grow your knowledge, this knowledge base that Jude is referencing for us. All right, so that's, that's my little uh, side note to, uh, to do that. But here, let's begin our journey in Jude in these first four verses. So the first part I want to look at is, who is Jude and why does he matter? All right, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Well, if you look at all the options of who's, who's available as, as Jude in, in Scripture, it boils down to the half-brother of Jesus, all right? And he's the brother to James. He wasn't the son of James. There was a, a Jude who was the son of James, but this is not that man. This is the brother to James. And if, if we look at the brothers of Jesus, I love this. 
And when I was preaching through Matthew, we came upon this, seeing the brothers and sisters of Jesus before the resurrection to see their attitude towards their brother. I don't blame them. Think about this. What if your brother started saying he was God? Right? Well, their reaction, we see it in John 7. Uh, we see, look at, listen to what happens here. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And we're like, well, how, do you, how come I'm reading this with a sarcastic attitude? Well, the very, verse tell, the very next verse tells us, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. They thought he was crazy. They're mocking him here. And yet, and yet, after the resurrection, we see a change. Because in Acts 1, before Pentecost happens, we see in Acts 1.14, it says this, all these, this whole, the group of believers, um, after seeing Jesus ascend on the Mount of Olives, after spending almost seven weeks or six weeks with him after the resurrection, he ascends and he says, go and wait in Jerusalem. And here we see uh, this group here. All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and, the, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Something happened. It was the resurrection. They went from mocking their brother to following and believing in their brother. James, the brother of Jesus, became the leader of the Jerusalem church, killed for saying, my brother's God. Again, imagine that you were there hearing this. This is supposed to be, you know, what? What's going on here? And that's what's amazing about this. The resurrection changed everything. It changed him. We see in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, though it's not talking about Judas, it's talking about James, as one of the proofs of the resurrection that he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. James is one of those people that critics of the resurrection, critics of the Christian faith cannot explain. How can a man who mocked his brother ahead of time was willing later to die for his brother? to die for, for saying, my brother is God. Not only to Billy, he led the church in Jerusalem. The resurrection explains that. It's amazing. So we see a change here. So we've got Jude, who is a follower of Jesus. We even see in 1 Corinthians 9, he was a, one of the traveling teachers. The brothers of Jesus were known as traveling teachers. They'd go with their, their wives. He wasn't an apostle. We see this from verse 17 and 18 that he, he said that you learned it from the apostles and they said to you. So he's not an apostle, but he's closely associated with them. But here's what I, what I really like. He calls himself, in some translations, says servant. The word is slave. He calls himself the slave of Jesus Christ. And I love that. He doesn't say, I'm the brother of Jesus. Hey, you need to listen to me. Here's my credentials. He says, I'm the slave of Jesus Christ. And that shows his humility, the fact that he saw himself under the absolute authority of Jesus the Christ, not Jesus my brother. There's no negotiating about who says what. Jesus is his master, his king. And we see that in this, Jude's self-description is actually setting the stage for what is to come in the rest of the letter. 
His humility and submission to Jesus, the master, because he uses that word, sets the stage for assaulting the arrogant and rebellious false teachers. So even in the first few words, we see, we see the stage being set. So that's, that's the, the author of the letter. And now we look at the, the recipients and why we should pay attention. And he says this, and this is just few words, but so loaded with truth. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Called. What an amazing term. It sets, and by the way, when it says that they're called and beloved and kept, he's setting the stage to contrast with these false teachers he's going to oppose. All right? So first of all, this audience, he's calling these Christians, he said that you're called. Rather than the teachers who stand condemned, you are called by God. Romans 1, 6 through 7 says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to Jesus. You are owned by Jesus. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we all know Romans 8, 28, right? We love that. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But notice what verses 29 and on say. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. To those he justified, he also glorified. He's saying from beginning to end, God saves you. From the beginning of of your foreknown. Before, when does that happen? Before creation. But he says you also glorified. So God, he, he calls you all the way through and protects you all the way to the minute you're glorified. And when does that happen? When you're with the Lord Jesus Christ. So called has an amazing term, amazing weight to it. It says in 1 Corinthians 1 and several things, we were called into fellowship, the fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And to those who are called in verse 24, it says, to to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So if you're called, instead of seeing Jesus Christ as folly and foolishness, he's the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's what happens to those who are called. He's called us to peace in 1 Corinthians 7. He's called us to freedom in Galatians 5. We've called, been called to a worthy walk in Ephesians 4. We've been called to his eternal glory in 1 Peter 5. So, how many of you as Christians like being known that you've been called by God? Amen? What a heart. That strengthens my heart to know that it's not by accident that I'm, I am his. Because he called me. And then it doesn't stop there. It says beloved. Now that's a, that's a word that doesn't need a lot of explaining, does it? Beloved. In God the Father. That's those who have the special love from the Father. An intimate relationship of love and care and protection. Just like as, I, as my kids were growing up, I wanted to protect them. My love for them had a component of protective love. I was going to protect them from danger. And I loved them and cared for them. And that's what he's saying. We're beloved of the Father. If you just walk through again, looking up the word beloved and just seeing what, what it means to be loved by God. John 13, he says, Jesus, he, he loved his own to the end. It's kind of love he had for his men. In John 16, it says the Father himself loves you. In John 17, that the Father and the Son love us. I love that. 
<laughs> I love being loved. He, he, he loves us so much, he showed his love towards us even when we were fighting against him in Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave. His love is a giving love. It's not some idea, it's action and it's promise. We're, we get to be called children according to 1 John 3.1. That's what his love has done for us. Kept, kept for Jesus Christ. That means guarded or preserved by God. He saves us and keeps us all the way to the end. And by the way, what God protects and guards, he doesn't lose, does he? Is that, is that good for your heart to know that? These are all weighted terms at the beginning of his letter. We can't fly past them. We have to understand what he's trying to do for these, these people who are facing a threat to the church. He reminds them, though there's this serious threat, here's what you are. Here's what you are. You are kept. You are beloved. You're called. And those who are kept by Christ, in John 6, it says he'll never cast out. And that he will raise us up on the last day. That's what Jesus promises. In John 10, it says no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. That's what happened if you're kept by Christ. John 17, it says that not only does Jesus keep us, but it says that God keeps us in his name. He guards us from the evil one. Is that precious to you? Romans 8, 31 through 39. Just listen to this, okay? So if you are, if you are kept by God, if you belong to God, listen to this. This is just an amazing passage. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to all these things, all the great truths of God's salvation? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one's against us. That matters. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The only one who can bring a charge against us is who? God himself, but he won't. It is God who justifies us. He justifies us, declares us not guilty, declares us innocent because of Jesus Christ. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. He's the one who could condemn us, but he doesn't do that, does he? He died for us. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is not condemning us. He's interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But even that, we still have his love. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that amazing? We can't run past these truths, folks. In just a few, three words here, kept, loved, beloved, and called, we have truths that should strengthen our hearts because we have a battle that we'll be facing, especially the battle that Jude is talking about for us to stand up to. But he doesn't end there yet. He says, may mercy... Peace and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, that's God's withholding of the punishment or discipline we deserve. It goes hand in hand with grace, which is God's giving us that which we don't deserve. And he withholds that the things we do deserve 
in his mercy. So those walking in God's truth and submitting to Jesus Christ as King Savior, we receive God's mercy. Again, a hint in this letter, these false teachers do not get God's mercy. They receive condemnation. Peace. Since we have God's mercy in Christ Jesus and in his substitutionary death, indeed, we have God's peace. We are reconciled to God in Christ Jesus, no longer enemies, but children. Ah, rest for the soul. Love. May love be multiplied to you. Not just, hey, you're on my side now. You're not my enemy anymore. You're my child. I mean, what, what better example can, can someone give of what love really is but that which a, a parent has for their child, right? I love my kids more than I love you guys because that's just God designed that. Is that bad to say? I don't think so. But his love for us is that kind of love. We are kept in his unconditional, unending, unchanging, committed, loyal covenant love. And here's the deal. He says, be multiplied to you. That means lavishly given, abundantly, overflowing. God is not a miser in his blessings to his children. He doesn't give us his blessings in love and mercy and peace begrudgingly. He loves to give and give and give. Amen? Yeah. Again, you want to notice these terms in the favor of God that that Jude is saying these recipients have. Faithful Christians who are facing a severe threat and are called to action against false teachers who are leading people astray. So in the face of the critical situation that these evil leaders are bringing into the church, yet here the Christians, these, the recipients that Jude is talking to, us as well, stand in God's special love and care. They're beloved, called, kept, blessed with overflowing mercy, peace, and the love of God in Christ Jesus. And again, these false teachers get the opposite. It's not, he's not talking about people on the fringes who might be pushing the envelope a little bit theologically. These are false teachers with evil motives who are cancer to be getting rid of. So again, tough words back in, again, in this first part we get encouraging words, but now we're going to start seeing uh, Jude's harsh words. And it's, it's what we need to listen to. We start seeing Jude's urgent call to contend for the faith, to protect the faith against false teachers. So in verse 3a, we see, we see him saying, look, beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, okay? And again, we get a hint that his original goal was, hey, I, I was, my goal was to write to you to rejoice in the salvation we have, to talk about the salvation in Jesus Christ. It's what we have in common. It's to solidify and celebrate the greatness of Christ's saving work, our common bond in Christ and the purposes we have. And yet, he had to change his mind. He had heard something. And this is where, uh, as you do your study during the week, there's a significant cross-reference I want you to read in 2 Peter chapters 2 and 3. Because it's almost verbatim, word for word in many places, where we see second, in 2 Peter, Peter's warning Christians, hey, watch out for false teachers, they're coming. Jude is saying here, they're here, folks, and we have to do something about that. You have to contend for the faith. So he says to contend against these false teachers. In verses, the second half of uh, verse 3 on through 4, he talks about the threat to the faith. I found it necessary to write 
appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He, he, he found out that the threat was there. It was already, they were already spreading their fatal disease, these infiltrators, these, these infections to the body, deadly. The churches had the false teachers already amongst them. Again, we see throughout, this, this is not alone, this letter nor Second Peter is alone in warning about false teachers. Again, I'm looking at, at you. It's like I'm preaching to the choir, but we have to understand that Paul said, watch out for attacks from without the church, but also from within. We read part of that today in, in Acts 20, 28. Paul is talking to the leaders of the Ephesian church. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves, watch out for your life, and to all the flock, pay attention to what's going on in the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The false teachers will be coming. Pay attention. And the way you fight them is know the word of God. Get ready to fight is what he said. But in Jude, they're here and now we got to fight. And that word contend, that's ep agonizomai is the Greek word. Agonizomai is the word. It sounds like agony. It's the idea of of a struggle. And it's used in athletic terms. That's one of the papers I did in seminaries on athletic imagery in the New Testament. And agonizomai is one of those great ones. Just You're just working hard and just sweating. But ep, that little prefix on there, intensifies. So that's why in, in your translations, the ESV, it says contend, but I put contend earnestly on the title because I think that's in the NASB because that's the picture. It's to make every effort and go beyond the effort because it's this critical. Struggle. Make intense effort to fight here, to fight for the faith. The gospel is at stake here. Not decisions about carpet color or how many services to have. It's about the gospel. The once for all delivered to the saints gospel. The faith itself is at stake here. So it's critical. I mean, we, we see, you know, when you want to say, well, what is the gospel? There's several places that talk about it. But 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5 is a good sample of just what it says. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. There were sins to be paid for, and that's what he died for. It was a substitutionary, propitiatory death. And it was according to the Scriptures. It was prophesied. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He really died. He really went into a tomb. He really paid the price for the wages of sin is death. And that's what he paid for us. And that he was raised on the third day. The resurrection, you have to believe in it. I've had conversations with some in the past. And one guy says, well, I, yeah, Jesus is a great teacher and all, but this resurrection, come on. I said, look, you have to believe in it. It is part of the gospel. The real, physical, literal resurrection from the dead. 
He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and the list goes on in the following verses. There was proof that he rose from the dead. People saw him and their lives were transformed. What was was the transformation that that Peter and the the disciples proved? Well, they went from being chickens because what did they do on the night of his arrest? They betrayed him. They ran away. And yet after the resurrection, they all died for their faith. Hideous deaths. But they did so willingly. What was Peter's way of dying? I'm not willing to die on a cross like my Savior. I'm unworthy. So what did he do? Church tradition says he was crucified upside down. How, how do you explain that? It's the resurrection. Jesus is really God and he really rose from the dead. And not only did he just rise from the dead, he's coming back. So that's, that's, what you, that's the threat to the faith and that we have to fight for the faith. And I, my personality is I like talking to people. I like being Mr. Nice Guy and stuff. But when it comes to this, we got to be tough. We have to have a spine. We have to be ready to spot and call out false teachers. does not mean we go on witch hunts. All right? It doesn't mean we're looking for, you know, every slightly false aberration. You know, there's, 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 there's room for discussion on, on many things. But when it comes to the gospel and how you're saved, there is no discussion. We have to realize there's a threat to the faith here. And he doesn't stop there. In verse 4, he gives us a little sampling of what she's going to explain more of their character and the content of the teaching of these false teachers. He goes on to say, for certain people. He's been talking personally to you. You are beloved, you're kept. But now he says, for certain people, there's a distancing here. He says, have crept in unnoticed. They're sneaky, deceitful, evil. That's the picture we're supposed to feel here. There's nothing pure about their motives. They had an evil motive from the beginning. They're designed to bring false teaching and ungodly living based on their lusts into the church. That's their goal. They're the wolves that would arise from amongst them. He says, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They're condemned by God. They're not just, oh, they're kind of bad right now. They're condemned, marked out as condemned. Make no mistake about it. You all are called, kept, beloved, at peace with God, receiving his mercy and love. On the other hand, they're marked out for condemnation and judgment. (laughs) These are pretty harsh terms. It's black and white, folks. There's no grays in this one. He says they're ungodly people. They're not people, I said this already, they're not people on the fringe, maybe a little bit liberal, you know, pushing the boundaries a tiny bit. No, they're ungodly, not Christians, not living under his word or according to his word. Indeed, they're sexually immoral. It says, who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Rather than praising God for his mercy and grace and living in his ways, so, they, so as to please him, because that's our goal. Right? Whether we're here or with the Lord, our goal is to please Him. That's our aim. 2 Corinthians 5 9. They're in these, these ungodly, they, they live for themselves. They take as much liberty as they can, claiming freedom from the law to live as they please. Romans 6 1 through 4, as Paul addresses this, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If we sin more, won't it make God's grace look even better? Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? These these false teachers, their lives show that they are false. So we're trying to spot, spot, 
spot false teachers. There we go. As we'll see in this letter, it's always looking at the content of their teaching and the character of their lives. Always they go together, all right? And they don't stop there. They deny the authority of Jesus. It says they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They claim their own authority, and we'll see that later on. Their visions. Oh, we have dreams. New revelation. No, it's once for all delivered to the saints. It's done. They claim their own authority for their teaching, for their lifestyle. They reject Christ's call to live holy lives. For instance, look at the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't just say live by the external law, live by the heart of the law, heart obedience. They reject him as their master. So this is just to set the stage for what's to come. The next major portion of what we'll have in Jude, he he really has some harsh language for these false teachers. Severe and swift judgment is coming upon them. And he just outlines what to look for. All right? So that's where we're headed. But for us tonight, as we move forward in Jude, we have to ask ourselves, here's what Jude is pointing out. And he's not necessarily pointing out specifics of their teaching too much. But we have to ask ourselves, what are the potential errors or false teachers we need to be on the lookout for? Folks, just because we're at Bethany with solid preaching and teaching here does not mean we, are, we don't face this threat. The church has always faced this threat, and we always have this responsibility to be alert. And it's not just for, for pastors. Who's Jude writing to here? To Christians. We all have that responsibility. So the question is, can you spot a fake? Right? And how do, how do people, how do, how are secret service agents, you know, taught to uh, spot counterfeit money? They understand the truth so well that when they touch something that's fake, they can, they can, oh, something's wrong here. And they look and they start doing, you know, looking for the distinguishing marks. Folks, we need to know the truth. And you can't be a slacker and let a good teacher like, like Lance or you name the men we have here and women who, who love the truth. They, it's, not, it's not up to them. It's up to you, right? Now, of course, pastors, well, the elders, we have a role that we need to play in this for sure, but you do too. So as we go forward in this, use this as a time to, to, spur, to spur you on to greater love for the truth. Because here's the deal. As you dig into God's word to know the truth, you know what you're going to find? You'll love God more you'll be blessed for it. So that's our challenge. And and by the way, too, this is also a call. Do you know your leaders well enough? You know who I am by name. I'm up front here. You know Pastor Lance. You've had him as your pastor for a while. But the question is, do you know our lifestyle? Do you? We're supposed to. We're supposed to be watching out for each other in love, but also we're supposed to be discerning. And call each other out if we need to. We need each other, folks, in this truth. But in this situation, when it comes to false teachers, we have to know what their lifestyles are like. That's part of this. There's other things to bring up here, but that's, just leave it at that. We're beginning a study here, and I'd really encourage you, dig into the Word, do the homework. Look at the different examples. Don't come here waiting for me to tell you what it is. Dig into God's Word so we can be on this truth study together. Amen? Amen, because the the gospel's at stake here. 2,000 years later, it's still something we need to fight for and contend for. We're commanded to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for just these first four verses, this this letter from Jude, who down through the ages, it calls out the church to love 
Jesus Christ, to love the word, to love the church, to love future generations of the church. So Lord, I pray that uh, we would take up that call to be people who are known for being people who just overflow of, with the love of God in Christ Jesus, but we'd also be very, very careful to protect the faith once for all delivered to the saints for the sake of the next generation, for the sake of our children. So God, thank you for this, this amazing treasure we've been entrusted with. May we guard it, may we love it, may it just bleed out of our lives. So we pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.